Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we have an interview for you. Rajiv sat down with uh, the Reverend Lenny Duncan, who Today, he's come out with a brand new book called Dear Church, A Love Letter from a Black Preacher to the Whitest Denomination in the U.S. Uh, this is a great conversation that Rajiv has with Lenny, and we're excited to bring it to you. For all the links of the things mentioned in the conversation you're about to hear, you can go to irenicast.com slash 145. That includes links on how you can order Lenny's book, as well as follow him on all the social media platforms, and it gives a great bio of him as well. So make sure you check out the show notes at irenicast.com slash 145. So without any further ado, here is Rajiv's conversation with Lenny Duncan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Arenicast. This is Rajiv, the artist formerly known as Raj. Today, this week, it's just me and a very special guest, author of Dear Church, a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the U.S., the Reverend Lenny Duncan. Welcome, Lenny. Uh, it's a real uh, honor to be here, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about the book. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. So I wanted to start with um, this tweet that you sent out that caught our attention. Several of us are on Twitter. Jeff, one of the co-hosts and, and one of the original founders, caught this tweet and retweeted it, and I saw it and was like, dang. This is, we need to talk to this man. So here's, here's the tweet. I'm going to read it. Yeah. Dear white guy, Theo Brogian, <laughs> no, one, no one wants your input. Not every thread is for you. You get to act like, you act like gaslighting is theological discourse on every thread. You aren't reading scripture from our social location. Most of us were drowned in your thoughts and told it was baptism. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's really funny, right? Uh, one of the things that tends to happen, you know, I'm pretty active on social media. And what happens is, is like, I'll say something and a Theobrogen comes swinging in, you know, and a Theobrogen's like, it's not always a cis white dude, but like most of the time it's a cis straight white dude. And they come swinging in and, you know, they want to correct you or they want to tell you the exegetical context of, a, of, of something you're saying, or they want to talk to you about ecclesiology. And it's like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like no one, no one asked you for that. Right. And like everything's not for you. Like I read right. threads all the time that are like feminist threads or womanist threads or like queer uh, trans threads. You know what I mean? Like I'm right. queer. I'm not trans and like not all trans people I would would consider themselves queer like do you know what I mean like there's just things that just aren't for me on Twitter like you know a lot of the talk about uh you know the passing of Rachel Held Evans like a lot yeah. of my uh, you know a lot of people I know personally were good friends with her but like I wasn't like you know what I mean so like I don't have to jump on every thread that's talking about like, that's their space for grief. I'm going to leave that to them. And, and like, haven't we heard enough? Haven't we had 1800 years of white dudes telling us what the church was at this point? Like, I, you know, when's enough is enough. Like when, when does it stop? It's really funny. Then I'll have like a white dude, like quote the church fathers to me. And I'm like, yo, you know, he was from Africa, right? Like, <laughs> 
you know that dude was from Turkey, right? Like you know, <laughs> like you know his ministry is what we call Indian now, right? right? Why are you this person to me? Like, and so like yeah, there's there's a lot of assumptions on Twitter that progressives aren't grounded in good scriptural exegesis, that uh, we aren't educated, that our that our institutions are weak, and honestly, a lot of it's progressive people's faults, really, or progressive theologians' faults. I mean, sometimes we. We're, we're so we're so quick to kick open the doors um, that we don't want to do some of the hard work it takes to build a structure, a, a framework that makes sense. You know what I mean? So, yeah, no, I, I'm just tired of people shit online, to be real honest with you. And like if, if you've ever, you know, I was talking about this with my friend Jason uh, the other day. We have a little podcast we just started called the Jesus John. Shout out. Boom, boom. And uh, we. uh one of the things I talked about like on our first episode is that like I don't believe in progressive um, purity. I don't believe that like anything I do is about progressive purity. But like also like if I do something that's problematic or something that deserves to be rectified or confronted, like message me. Like anyone who's ever messaged me, even like white supremacists, I've engaged in conversation. But like, if you just come on my thread to try and score points, I, it's it's a scorch earth policy. I'm gonna light you up, and I I just don't care. I, I just don't care. And I I, I personally I love that. I, I think as a fellow progressive Christian minister, also in a very white denomination, the United Church of Christ, I, I wonder like, do you or how did you reconcile sort of the role of pastoral presence versus prophetic voice? No, that's a really good question. I mean, so I'll tell you that like when I was going through our candidacy process, which I know is real similar to y'all's, you have to do three years in seminary, you have to do CPE, you have to do a one-year long internship. I actually did a three-year long one that was called a co-op program where I did 30 hours a week in ministry and uh, six classes a semester. So like I was basically trying to die for three years. And so a lot of the feedback I got was, well, like, you know, you're really good at uh, prophetic ministry, which I don't like that term, but you're really good at like prophetic ministry. This is like bishops, you know what I mean? But like, where, when does the pastoral kick in? And this idea that the two are not the same or the same side or two sides of the same coin is really, um, it's dangerous. One thing that a prophet knows is a prophet the prophets in the Hebrew Bible knew they were under the same sentence that they were pronouncing on the people. You take Isaiah. Isaiah knows when Isaiah's talking about Israel, he means him. Habakkuk knows that when he's talking about the pain that, that the people are experiencing, you know, Habakkuk means Habakkuk, right? Like, I know that when I talk about the problems of the evangelical Lutheran church in America, I'm talking about me. I'm not separating myself. I'm no better than anyone in it. I'm under the same um, sentence that I'm pronouncing. I'm just as responsible. You know, like Dylan Roof, who went in and killed, you know, the Charleston Nine was an ELCA Lutheran. That's a reflection on me, as well as Dylan, as well as our church. Mm. And like, I have to own that. Like, I have to live into that there's nothing more pastoral than like being like, I'm right here with my people. I'm just as broken as my people. Mm. And we got some, we got some work to do, but yeah, it, it, it's tough. It's tough. Right. Um, I also think that like calling anyone prophetic is dangerous. 
Um, it's like basically wishing death on them. Like the prophets had terrible. <laughs> like when someone's like, sure. you're, you're so prophetic. I'm like, yo, you really don't like me. What you're saying is you hope I get stoned. You hope I lose everything. And also from a theological standpoint, prophecy doesn't work. It doesn't work. The people never listen to them. It's so otherworldly. It's so outside this world and, and, and it's disruptive and it comes from the spirit and it never works. Hardly ever do the people in the Hebrew Bible listen to the prophets. That's, that's not what happens. Well, that's the other thing too. Yeah. And, but I, I think is, isn't there a role for those voices calling out in the wilderness? Oh yeah. That we think are crazy in the moment, but need to be put out into the space. Oh no, absolutely. I think it's important stuff. In a lot of ways, I engage in um, in that kind of work. You know, I think all prophetic ministry starts with "get." I'll do it. You know, (laughs) right? You know, and so I don't think it comes from like this place of righteousness. Right. I think I think there's a charism on some people, and I think there's a, a mark on some people laid upon them by God for a time and a season, and they do that stuff. So it does have a place. I just have to look at the examples I have in scripture and, um, you know, or even the examples I have in modern, you know, modern day prophets, you know, none of them had good ends either. You know what I mean? Like, so I think in progressive Christianity, we throw that word around a lot. Um, and I don't think we understand the weight or the consequence of it, especially saying it to a black man, you know, you're so prophetic. Oh, cool. So you want the FBI to like start investigating me. Super dope. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so, um, and I certainly don't have presumptions of who and, and what I am. I'm just doing what I'm doing and saying what I'm saying. Right. I always get concerned when people call themselves prophetic. Yes. And, and pretty much, in my mind, write them off as, well, you're not. Right. You know, I, I, I think that the true prophets are people that do enter that space with the, get, I'll do it. Right, but, but not from a place of like I've been anointed, but just there's a desperation here, and I'm going to go ahead and speak to it. And so, you know, I I don't know. I I I need to think more about what you're saying because when I read your stuff, when I follow you on social media, you know, the space that the prophets hold kind of surfaces for me when I engage with your material. Right. Um, and and in no way is it a, a sense, I guess for me also, you know, I'm not African-American, I'm not black, but I am a dark brown skin Indian. Yeah, so, that's, that's, that's not um, a good, that's not it, a good uh, paper route nowadays. Right. I mean, it carries its own it different kind of issue, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, so I, I see what you're doing. And when I think this is a prophetic voice, I, I get protective of you. In the sense, because right. I, I, I know what could be ahead. I mean, we've seen it, like you just said, we've seen it before. And I see it almost as, as a way of letting me know that if and when the subject of Lenny Duncan comes up in any of my circles, I get to stand with you. Right. And, and be an ally at a distance. Um, you know, I'm in California, you're in New York. So I, I, I just want to say that in hopes that you recognize that maybe not everyone who calls you prophet or prophetic is hoping ill on you. But some of us are really pulling for you and are preparing to stand with you um, when those times come, which inevitably they will. 
Yeah. Um, and I, and, and thank you for what you said. I, you know, I, um, I also think that like, yeah, there is, there, there are people out there saying things that they're going to pay for. Right. And I think there's a, I think there's a cost to discipleship, not to get all Bonhoeffer. Right. Sure. Cause I hate that Lutherans literally have no other thing to pull from, from the well. But, um, I mean, come on. When's the last time you talked to a Lutheran for more than five minutes and they didn't bring up Bonhoeffer? Jesus. Right. <laughs> um, but I think there is a cost to discipleship. Absolutely. I think the inevitability of the Christian, I mean, beyond salvation, beyond what happened on the cross, beyond resurrection, or actually before, if you want to get all literal with the timeline, is that you have to walk to Calvary. There, you know, you're talking about a public lynching, you know, you're talking about degradation and you're talking about being stripped naked, which is sexual assault. Like you're talking about and being hung from a tree. I mean, you're, you're really, I mean, and I, I think that's the inevitable conclusion of discipleship before resurrection. And, and, and I, I don't know if we live into that enough. I know I said some things in the book that are some people are not going to like. I actually had a local youth group say, we don't want him to, one of the churches of our local conference youth group was like, are you sure you want him to speak? Did you hear about the title of his book? <laughs> and wow. yeah, like the title is like a love letter to fact, the whitest denomination in the U S like read a Pew study, you know what right. I'm saying? <laughs> right. But, but people, you know, we're not in a time where people dig that kind of stuff. People don't like truth telling. People right. like emotional telling, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we could talk about probably any subject all day long, but I want to try to bring us back around to, to your book because that is on the verge of being released. July 2nd, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it is. July 2nd. And in in the book, you touch on your personal journey and your personal history, and it's it's astounding. I mean, I, I just kept pausing, like I've, I've I've I needed to pause and like let this sink in, your story sink in, because you know it was not just one thing, but a couple of things that it takes sort of a, a might and determination and a humility really to to move through and move beyond. So could could you talk a little bit about your your story up to this point. Yeah. Um, so I was not raised in the Christian church. Um, I grew up in West Philadelphia. And in fact, uh, I was just taught, I grew up right by where the move bombings happened. I grew up about six blocks away and, you know, just Google move bombings, Philadelphia, if you don't know the story. So I grew up in that part of West Philadelphia. Uh, my parents met and fell in love in a drug rehab. So like, you know, spoiler alert, story goes downhill from there. You know, I um, grew up in a house where, like, um, there wasn't, like, hope of the resurrection. There was, like, whether or not, you know, I hope there's a meal, you know, on the um, table. I don't want to paint it as too broken or too dark because, like, the, the funny thing is when you talk about growing up on the margins and you talk about uh, systemic oppression and some of the stuff that, that you land in, people don't realize there's a lot of joy in those places. Do you know what I'm saying? And, like, right. it, and they, they don't That's realize right. There's joy, there's life, there's, there's, so like there, there, there are things, but I left home at 12, felt like I could do a little bit better on my own, um, and was pretty much full-time homeless from 13 to about 19, maybe 20, 22, with various periods of that, um, had a lot of contact with the criminal justice system, mostly marijuana charges, 
which, you know, now seems ridiculous, right? That like, you know, I end up with 14 felonies for selling pot in Colorado and San Francisco. Like that seems ridiculous now, right? right but right. my entire life was affected by that. Um, you know, and at the time, because of the Clinton's war on drugs, I couldn't even access, you know, federal, um, I couldn't even access FASA. So like, you know, like, mm. and so I had these encounters with the criminal justice system where, you know, they give you 28 days to do the one thing you've never been able to do, which is like, you know, get your life together. You know, they, they release you from jail and they say, you know, you have to get a job. You have to start paying these fines. You have to stay sober and you have to be back here. Right. in 28 days to prove all that. Well, that's like all stuff I was never able to pull off. You know, about 10, 11 years ago, I had an encounter with Christ. You know, I heard a voice deep down inside that said, you're getting sober today. And I believed it. And for me, God's grace is not that I heard that voice. It's that I believe that voice. I was hearing lots of voices that week. You should kill yourself. It's not worth it. You shouldn't get so like, you know, you're, you know, you're nothing. But God's grace is that I believe that voice. And um, I was standing in the back of a concert. I walked right out and I went to the nearest uh, hospital. I've been sober ever since. But for some reason, I associated that voice with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Hmm. And like, <laughs> had no contact with the church. Like, you know, I had people pray over me and try and get the demons out of me and, you know, all that bullshit, you know, and, you know, people give me tracks, you know, where, where are you going when it's over? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. But like, I had, had I had no community. I, I had never experienced, you know, the table. I had never experienced a good exegesis. I had never experienced any of that stuff. And for some reason, I associated that with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I wasn't going to tell anyone that because like, you know, like I, you know, I was in a 12 step program and Christians are weird and like, you know, I want to get laid and have fun now and I'm sober and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't like, Hey man, you want to come to church for me Saturday night? And so, like, <laughs> you know, so like, I, was, I was like sneaking around and going to church and mm-hmm. it was super weird. I like, I remember a couple people I was dating, you know, at the time, like, where do you go every Saturday night? And I was like, hella, like, you know, I was hella shady about it. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, well, you never want to hang out on a Saturday night. I'm like, well, you know, I mostly just chill by myself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was a free range Christian, man. I would, wherever mm. I was deciding, whoever had a Saturday night service, it didn't piss me off. I would show up. I would sit up front. That's how you knew I was a visitor. I would sit right up front. I would sing the songs hella off key. <clears throat> you know, I would jump up and down. I mean, you know, you're at a Catholic service with your hands up, you know, and stuff like <laughs> that, you know, and, uh, um, you know, and I'm a priest or a pastor or, the, or whoever would say something. I'd be like, yes, you know, I'd start snapping my fingers, you know, like, I, you know, I'm clearly not part of that community or not, not encultured or indoctrinated, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, well, you know, wherever I went, I put 10% of whatever I made that week into the basket and I left. Never signed anything. Never, you know, never, <laughs> never went to any one of your stupid membership classes. I didn't want any of that crap. But throughout that time, I started to feel a call to ministry. And uh, I tried to live into it, you know, like I tried to live into it. Uh, and I started to listen. Um, and so, you know, long story short, I end up in the ELCA church. I talk about it in the first chapter of the book. Um, and this guy called Reverend Tim Johansson uh, just started to pour into me. You know, he just started to like meet with me once a week. 
have lunch with me, treat me like a peer and an equal. I was going to like a Bible college at the time. He didn't make fun of me. Like, you know what I mean? Like he just, you know, he just really, he's like, you know, fanned the flames. Um, and after a while I realized like, wow, I'm a Lutheran. Like, that's what I am. That's cool. What is, you know, and um, started to engage in the KNC process in the Lutheran church. But uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not their average, you know, church camp kid. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Who's been told how wonderful <laughs> he is, you know, like you, you know, you're such a special Lutheran snowflake and we can't wait for you to <laughs> <laughs> Lutheran snowflake. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, and look, a lot of my friends are from that system. I mean, sure. great system. It's, it's, there's, there's a camp up here. That's a pastor machine. It just cranks them out and it's wonderful work they're doing. I'm not trying to belittle it, but I'm just saying yeah. like, I'm not from that culture. That's not you. Right. I didn't sit around on a Saturday night around a fire and sing like, you know, uh, let's break bread together on our knees. Like no negative, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And so I kind of took the church, you know, I ended up at the church, you know, getting a, a scholarship, a seminary and um, have been serving in, uh, you know, either a queer context or a queer and black context my entire time. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a, I mean, the the arc of your story is powerful and there's there's a little more in the book. One of the things that you touch on early on in in the book is the the table experience. You know, and and this wide open welcome. They're like, you don't have to be a member. You don't have to be a Christian. If you want to be part of this community, come on up. Or if you appreciate what this community offers, come on up and share the meal with us. And you talk about that in a particularly powerful way that was very moving to me to read it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, you know, what was declared to me, you know, at that time was that, you know, this is Jesus' table. He made no restrictions and neither do we that was mind blowing to me. Right. Like I didn't have to like go to a membership meeting or have a friendly talk with the pastor about my theology, or it was the first time someone had offered to me the grace of God and the nearness of God. And it was a wide open highway. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it was a wide open highway. And, and I don't think we, um, particularly um, in progressive circles realize how powerful that is, you know, Um, You know, one of the things I say in the book is that tears welled up in my eyes as I walked up the aisle. I mean, you loved me. You really loved me. This welcome to the table was something I had never experienced before. I didn't even know what it was. Mm -hmm. It awakened the shadow side of my relationship with God that I hadn't had the courage to look under. It was like a knife that cut instantly through years of shame and brokenness and released me from those bonds. Grace is like a knife sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, that's, that's what it felt like. It felt like a knife. It felt like it, 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 it had cut these things that I had been wrapped up so tight in, right? They're like, you know, I can't approach the table. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I come from. And I always felt like a frog approaching the table. In one second, someone took that away from me. Yeah. It was a simple declaration. Jesus, yeah. there's no restrictions at this table and neither do we. I was like, holy you know, I was like, you just, you're just giving this stuff away. Right. You know? <laughs> it, it is truly powerful. And I think if you grew up with that paradigm, you don't realize how powerful it is. Yeah. And, you know, when you walk up there, in my experience, you know, I was kind of expecting sideways looks here and there. Like, he hasn't been around very much. I mean, is he really in? 
Right. Um, you know, it was just people were warm and you were part of it, like legitimately part of it. Yeah. I, I think people do forget that like the relationship with the table is super fraught with peril for some people. Like I really do. I think people forget that it's fraught with peril that 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 people are 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 afraid that you will deny them people are afraid that you'll that you'll break their hearts right because they've had their hearts broken by the church that's right and um it is really vulnerable to get in line with a bunch of strangers to go up to stand before the person who just stood before the altar and is really the stand in for Christ in that moment and to offer you uh, the sacraments, you know, sight unknown, person unknown, all that kind of stuff, you know? And when you have, I have a high table theology. I think it's the most important thing we do. And I thank God for the table, especially when I preach a clunker. And, <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, at least they're getting right. a today, right? <laughs> and, you know, like, because I have such respect for it, for the table, I just think it's the most amazing thing we do. And we do it every Sunday and it blows my mind. I tell my people every week, I'm like, it's an altar call. Right. We have an altar call every Sunday. And That's right. every Sunday we come to you and we say that Christ is sufficient. You are sufficient. Mm. And let's meet in that. Like let us meet mm. in, in this wholeness that's being offered to you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's how I explain it to my people. You know, someone say, well, y'all don't do altar calls. Well, we do an altar call every Sunday and then, you know, right. every Sunday. So. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. That was very cool. So it, one of your chapters, chapter seven is titled yes. toxic masculinity is killing us. Yeah. And this is a, this is a topic that I've been pretty deeply invested in for a while. Um, you know, Toxic masculinity, male supremacy. I, I use those terms instead of patriarchy. Um, maybe that's a, a shortcoming on my part, but I, I feel that the real evil is toxic masculinity and male supremacy. Right. Um, so, why why did you include that in in this book? So it's it's funny. Um, so I, I was working on this memoir thing that I'm, I'm repitching to the publisher and I, I wanted to tell my memoir, my, my story. Uh, they, after like weeks of working on, uh, on this pitch, I was told that they didn't want it. Right. Which is like the worst. Right. And so my editor hits me up and is like, Hey, we really don't want the, the memoir thing, but what we do want <laughs> is for you to write a book about where you see the church going in the 21st century. And I was like, fuck you. Like, what do you, what? you want me to write what? You know? I was like, I'm a, I'm a first call pastor. I'm already known for not, you know, keeping my mouth shut. I'm already like, either you love me or you hate me. I got to live with that every day. And now you want me to write, you want me to tell the, you know, the, the denomination what direction it should be headed in the 21st century. I was like, no, negative. And she wrote me back and was like, hey, her name's Lisa Kloskin, and I'm afraid I'll never be able to work with another editor ever again. <laughs> She's amazing. And so she wrote me back and she was like, I hear you. Why don't you just work on a sample table of contents? And I was like, ah, oh, maybe I'll get it to you in a couple of weeks. Because, you know, this thing that I wanted to do was dead, you know? Mm-hmm. But I got pissed when I sent the email and I was like, all right, you want a fucking table of contents? Here's a table of contents. You- yeah. And I kind of wrote this, this you to Fortress Press. It was like, 
it was like, you'll never talk about nationalism. I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk about systemic racism. I'm going to talk about how this denomination is racist as hell. I'm going to talk about Dylan Roof. I was like, and then I was like, and I'm going to talk about how all our male pastors are creepy AF. Right. And you know, they, they got back to me and were like, it's a go. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And so then I had to write it. Part of that was this chapter. And so they really wanted me to talk about church too. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just did not, my first instinct was, I was like, I'm a cis male. Like, I'm not going to talk about that. I say, but what I will talk about is how toxic masculinity is literally corrupting the church. And they were like, okay, let's do that. Right. Cause they came back at me when I sent that, that sample table of contents and, and wanted me to, to do it. And when I wrote it, I wanted it to, to be a confession about, to be a confession about me and my mistakes and my shortcomings. I feel like the first place we start is repentance. And I can tell you like as a, as, as a hyper aggressive looking or hyper, you know, male looking queer guy in a heteronormative relationship, it's easy for me to, to protect myself, I've, I, I have done these toxic masculine, you know, masculine things. I have done these male supremacist things mm-hmm. um, out of terror that I would be found out. I, I wanted it to start with confession and I wanted it to be powerful and personal. Um, but I also wanted to talk about some of the things that my experience of sex, one of the things I say is my experience of sex and my sexual identity are made up of a number of intertwining threads. The same is true for the church, right? And that these documents we create are based on a false doctrine about manhood that doesn't exist. And like, if you, if, if you right now, if you scan the horizon for what authentic manhood looks like in progressive Christianity, it doesn't exist. Amen. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist mm-hmm. because even the dude bros who show up and are like so woke are dangerous AF, right? Mm-hmm. I'm dangerous AF left to my own devices. And like, I have to like own that and start listening, you know? Um, and, and some of the stuff I do, you know, in my personal life and in my personal um, uh, self care is I, you know, I have a crew of women of color that can tell me, that can call me at any time and tell me to sit down, <laughs> you know, when I'm acting crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listen to female slash femme leadership, but like none of that matters if I start running roughshod over the world. And that's, and that's just the truth, you know. I have been fed this false idea of what a man is and I have been taking it out on the world, you know, that I was meant, you know, it's a worldview where like, I'm supposed to dominate my family, that I'm supposed to like not be a a weakling, a punk or a bitch. And like all those things my father told me when he was like punching me in the face and stuff, you know, that stuff is so encoded in me. And I don't even realize when I do it, you know, and even the way I interact with my partner or my daughter or other women that I serve at the church, it's like crazy how that stuff is built into the genetic code of who I am now. And it's all trauma and fear-based 
and ugly and it's gross. And it's all like, you know, in the book, one of the things I talk about is all these things are functions of white supremacy. They're all functions of white supremacy, including toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And like, so what does it mean when I confess? And what does it mean to actively try and undress it? And also, what does it mean that I'm willing to look like an asshole? Do you know what I mean? Like, like one of the things I always talk about is that Jesus gives me the ability to walk around with egg on my face, right? Right. Right. Like, like, oh, 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 you know, uh, this, this one's on me, team. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like if you're not working with a powerful God, if your God's not powerful enough for you to look like an asshole in front of everyone, then your God's not powerful enough. Like, you have to be able to make a mistake, show up, you know what I mean? And be like, yo, I did that. And then own all the feedback and then not disappear and slither away. Right. Right. Stay active in that community if they still want you there. Yeah. We can't solve social problems in private and muddling through what could be, we're going to make mistakes. Mistakes are inevitable. The way you put that though, to be able to walk, Jesus makes it possible for you to wear egg on your face. Um, that's a powerful illustration. And so you put this in the book because it is, it is pretty central. Toxic masculinity is a central evil. Yeah. And I, and I think the church is the worst perpetrator of it. I mean, just grossly misaligned with what's really happening, you know, particularly black church, right? Like black mm-hmm. church, I can, I can only speak about black church cause that's what I serve in now. Right. So like black church, 80% of the membership or 70% of the membership, I just saw a thing is black women. But the, the, the power of that's a little strange, right? Like I hold this place of power in it. That's a little bit uneven. Right. And the people who are um, doing the hard discipleship work are hardly ever dudes. Right. It's always women carrying the load, leading the way, doing all the things that like, you know, I don't have time to do because I'm cloistered in my office crafting the perfect sermon or like whatever bullshit, you know what I mean? I think I got going on. Right. But like the ones who are feeding the hungry, clothing mm-hmm. naked, standing with the prisoner, uh, cleaning up the junk you left behind on your desk, uh, welcoming new members, uh, singing in our choirs, doing the thousands of little things that a good community does to support a leader are almost without fail women, femmes, or female. Without fail. You know, when, 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 when Jesus' feet, are, when Lazarus dies, they know who to send for. The ones who bared witness, right? Because I think the, the Christian message is about bearing witness to tragedy and brokenness. The women stay the entire time and bear witness to the public lynching of Christ. They are the first to hear that the resurrection has happened, and they're the first to run to the cowardly men who are hiding, who don't believe them. And so part of it's what I do from the pulpit. Part of it is the group of women that I listen to, that I keep close, that are near and dear to my heart, who are um, other you know, pastors and lay people who are key leaders um, throughout the country. Part of it is like listening to the stories of, of women and, and believing them, right? Just believing them. Um, but like, do I mess up all the time? Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like, do I screw up? Yeah. One thing my daughter has been pointing out is that like the assumption that I don't have to clean around here just because I work 70 hours a week. Right? <laughs> it's been driving her crazy because for her, she sees that as clearly some sexist bullshit. 
right? And in my mind, I'm like, well, I work 70 hours a week and you basically don't have to work in the most expensive city in the world. But like, where does that come from? Who the hell do I think I am? And like, why does that give me the right not to participate in my home, right? Mm-hmm. And like, the worst part is she's right and I just don't want to tell her because it's my daughter, you know? <laughs> but like, it's that kind of stuff, right? Like, even that's just occurring to me, right? And then my other solution, my first thought was like, well, I'll just hire like someone to come clean once a week. Like, what? I'll hire mm-hmm. like some other marginalized person to clean my place because I don't want to do the goddamn dishes. Are you kidding me? Like, you know, like, right. so this stuff is so built into us and it's even about paying attention to the media. You know, like I'm, I'm a Xennial. I was born in 78. Right. And I, so I'm right on the, you know, I'm late Gen X, early millennial or Xennial or whatever. And I look at the content I was given in media. Like my God, 16 candles. Like, what is that? Better off dead. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. whole- about this kid wants to commit suicide because this girl won't give him unrequited love. Right. That's That's like so insane to me. You know, at pretty much any John Cusack film, right. Has has filled your mind full of bullshit and, and music, you know? Um, And even like, I'm a big comic book fan, all the comic books I read, everything that I've consumed up until the last year, two or three has really been slanted in that way. Sure. Um, and so even my, and even my fantasy life goes there. So, um, I, you know, I, I try to be aware of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, it is, it's deep. Like you, you said, it's, it's at a molecular level yes. and we are socialized to be a certain way. Overcoming that is, is hard because that's the, the way we were socialized is also how we get validation for being something and somebody. Right. I just don't know. I don't want to say solution because I don't believe in solution, but I don't know what the plan of attack is at this point. Like, I don't believe in neat package solutions, but there has to be a plan of attack to dismantle this stuff. Um, I think part of it is like, you know, two men having this conversation. Sure. You know what I mean? And, and sure. to have those conversations also like calling out our boys, you know, like there's like, seems to be like this boy, like this bro culture in the church. We're like, you know, like, I don't mind saying to someone who's a dude, like, yeah, what you said was gross. You're gross. <laughs> like, I'm disgusted by you. And you should go apologize to her. You know, <laughs> like, like, you're gross. And trying to be aware of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I am not in a parish setting. I went back to nonprofit work and now I'm opening a business. But um, my wife, is the pastor, her and a, a co-pastor. They're both women. And that's where I attend. That's where I'm a member actively involved. And that's been a really interesting experience to be at a church with two women pastors. So women, I mean, women pastors in the UCC is not unusual. Right. Uh, you know, and it's not a solo pastorate, it's a staff. And then to be, to learn to be a pastor's spouse has been a really interesting dynamic for me because the conservative world I grew up in there's one way to be a pastor's spouse, you know, and it's it's the expectation of of women. But I found that I am actually growing into it. And what's cool, like you pointed out, what the the people that give me affirmation for being a good pastor's spouse are the older women in the church. Isn't that crazy? They will they will come up to me at fellowship hour. They will squeeze me, and they were like, "Raj, Rajiv, we we see you. 
We just want you to know we see you and, and how support. And it, it's like, it caught me off guard the first couple of times. I just thought, you know, I'm trying to help, but it was, it was a beautiful point of connection that I never was even aware of before being in this role because I have an amazing spouse who um, is doing amazing things and, and I get to be in a role I never imagined I'd be in. So I'm, I'm hearing you and feeling you and kind of working through a lot of that stuff myself. It's interesting too, because, uh, you know, I serve a church called Jehu's Table um, in Brooklyn, New York, um, in the East New York neighborhood of Brooklyn. And it's launched out of a, a historically black Lutheran church. So all, most of our members are black. Um, we're, we're, we're finding much more of a multicultural appeal recently, but most of our members are black. And so there, there are expectations on the pastor you know, and they call, you know, my little Jewish partner, the first lady. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And so she, you know, Bree, my partner looks at ministry as like, roll your sleeves up. Let's go. Like we're, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm here as a member of this community to roll my sleeves, get my hands dirty and get in it. And that was such a, a change for them. You know, one of the members, you know, right. members friends was like, you know, you, you, you do that, uh, that community meal for the for houseless folks and, and economically insecure folks with, with the first lady, you know? And she's like, yeah, she, yeah, yeah, I do. She's like, what's that like? She's like, you know, she does more dishes than the rest of us. She's, you know, she's knee deep. Right. Yes. Like, you know, and, and part of that is that like, you know, there's this idea that the spouse was particularly in the fifties and sixties is to sit there white gloved presiding over these sort of functions and not necessarily as engaged as Brie or as um, authentic as we are. Uh, we really believe, or at least I really believe in shoulder to shoulder ministry. Like sure. I'm in with you. I'm broken. We're on this journey together. And I'm not the person who's been lifted up. I'm the person who's been set aside to administer the sacraments and to preach the word to you. And within those functions, that's my purview. But like ministry is so much more than that. And life is so much more than that. And um, I'm here to be just as broken as you are and, and, and to be authentically who I am. And one thing about me is I'm me wherever I go. Like how I am on podcasts, how I am at the pulpit. I mean, a lot less cussing at the pulpit, clearly. You know, like wh- wherever I am, I'm me. And that's, and that's how I'm going to be, you know, if, if any of my friends listen to this, they'd be like, yeah, that's, that's about him. Right. <laughs> that's about it. And, um, you know, but I'm, I'm really into that. I think, I think that's like such a great um, modality um, of ministry that, that it really shines through. And, and my partner is really into that too. And I would suspect that if you're coming from a place like that too, that for, for a lot of the older ladies, that's, a breath of fresh air, right? And you're being supportive, right? You're actually living into the role, right? Which trying, is di- trying to, which is different for for to see a man doing, right? I'm sure it's really powerful for some folks. Yeah, well, I'm you know just figuring out as I go, and it's uh, it's been fun. It's a great church. I mean, it, it's just a great church anyway. Um, so yeah, but part of that, uh, you know, there's there's the theory of decentering oneself and i'm getting thanks to a lot of other forces getting to experience what that's like and and learning to do it better learning to embrace it because it's it it doesn't bring the ego strokes that you're conditioned 
yeah. to, to go after. I, I also think another part of that, one of the points I bring up in the book is that, you know, white supremacy is a cage, not only for the oppressed, but for the oppressor. Absolutely. And masculinity is the same thing. It's a cage. And um, you don't realize what freedom is until you experience freedom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is freedom. Wow, what was I doing all this time, you know? Yeah. So we've got um, a couple of minutes here. It, tell us a little bit more about this podcast that you've got launching. Yeah, so I'm doing a podcast with uh, Jay, the Reverend Jason Chestnut um, or at Crazy Pastor on Twitter. I'm at Lenny A. Duncan on Twitter. And we are um, doing this thing called the Jesus John. And so it's basically a podcast where it's two pastors kind of talking shit, talking politics, talking video games, talking music, and then good guests. And one of the things we're doing is we're trying to make sure that we have female or femme guests with a focus on women of color, um, particularly black queer women, and 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 centering their work because it is two dudes talking, right? So like, <laughs> we're like hyper aware it's two dudes talking about God. Like, wow, what's great about that while also focus on the fact that that we do have something to offer so yeah so the jesus john um is is that it's just us kind of talking getting together having dope ass guests and talking about the radical jesus movement um john is a philadelphia word that means a person place or thing so anything could be a john um so you know did you know did you listen to that jesus john you know i mean or that john over there or pick up that John on your way home or, you know what I mean? So uh, I wanted to bring a little bit of flavor. Jason's really embedded in anti-racism work. Um, and I do a lot of that work. And so we wanted to, t- to talk about that from a different perspective. And, and we're hoping that we offer something that's, that's life giving for people. Um, and it's also kind of fun to listen to a lot of podcasts are too heavy. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know? So we also wanted to kind of have fun. So it's a lot of, it's like us making fun of each other. And, and trying to have a good time. And that's, um, I, it's available right now on our Bible app. And also I think iTunes might be approving us soon. We had to change one of our graphics because it said shit. And, <laughs> right. Uh, we're so we think iTunes is going to approve us, but we're also available on a couple other things. Okay. So, yeah. Well, you send them to us and we'll put them in our show notes. So people know awesome. how to find you. Awesome. We, we want to support you. And, um, we're honored, and I, I say we on behalf of, of my co-hosts who aren't with us in this recording, but honored to have you on our podcast. And um, just in case you missed it, listeners, this has been Reverend Lenny Duncan, author of Dear Church, a love letter from a black preacher to the whitest denomination in the United States. Any parting words, Lenny? Yeah, uh other than buy the book July 2nd, anywhere you can buy a book. The book is, the whole premise of the book is that dismantling white supremacy is the call of the church in in the 21st century. So if you feel that like the Jesus movement needs to be centered in dismantling white supremacy, then this is the book for you. Pick it up. Excellent. Thank you, Lenny. And it is a great book. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading it and uh, we'll probably revisit it. There's got there's a lot of highlights in that thing. Awesome. So I look forward to it. And friends listening, let us know what you think. To add your voice to this particular conversation, comment on the show notes at arenacast.com. Lenny, you already gave us a little bit of info, but how can they find you on the social media channels? 
Yeah, so I'm Lenny A. Duncan or Lenny Duncan on every platform. I own all the Lenny Duncans. You can also look me up at LennyDuncan.com. Um, that has the book tour and some other relevant information where I'm at. And also check out the church, jehustable.org. That's J-E-H-U-S-T-A-B-L-E.org. Awesome. You can follow me at Facebook and Twitter as Rev Raj Rambob. As for Arenacast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. Pandora now. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. You can also fill out our listener survey at arenacast.com slash survey. The information you give us helps. We reshape the show in an ongoing way so it's relevant to you. So for this week, this is Rajiv. Thank you for joining the conversation. Peace. Peace.